Welcome to the Gutsy Ones. My name is Sandeep Rao. I'm an engineer, a serial entrepreneur, and an advocate for the mental well-being of founders and their team. Each episode will showcase the fascinating story of people who have made gutsy decisions. We will look at how it impacted them and how they made their way back. Dear listeners, welcome to this episode. Today I have with me Alan Stevens. He is an international profiling and communications specialist. He has been referred to by the UK Guardian as the leading authority on reading people globally. And the Herald has called him the mentalist meets Dr. Phil. I think it's really interesting to have Alan on my episode, and I'm sure you will enjoy this. Alan is also the creator of the Hash We Together initiative and the Campfire Project. I'll get Alan to talk to talk about it a little later on. But first, let me welcome Alan. Alan, welcome to this episode. Thanks very much, Sandy. Great to be here. Absolutely. So, Alan, one of the things that you talk about is the work that you've done with clients such as Disney Films, Gillette, and organizations such as the Australian Federal Police. And you help them to understand how people tick. You also work with business owners and executives and help them to understand how to engage the clients and prospects. I'd love to understand a bit more, Alan. Tell me, please. Okay, well, I teach people how to read other people to build stronger relationships in their life. That's a primary area. And then secondly, to work out whether the people are telling them the truth as well. And the uh, the way I do that, your facial features tell me your, your personality. And if you think about that, you lift weights in your body, you'll, lift, you'll build muscles. Mm-hmm. At the same time, everything we feel inside, we express outwardly. So while you're concentrating and working away, you're going to be pulling expressions. And that repeated movement of the muscles creates different ridges and crevices on your face that tell me your personality. Once I've got that, then I know how to change the way I like to be spoken to to match the way that you need to be spoken to and the way that you want to be spoken to. And then while I'm talking to you in that fashion, I've then got the feedback from your body language and expressions. Have I read you right? Is there something emotionally going on? And then, yes, are you telling me the truth in the situation? So with uh, businesses, I'm helping them how to increase their sales, but also how to put the right people in the right tasks and the right jobs, and also how to improve their sales as well by being able to read their clients more effectively. Right. So you then work with business owners and executives to Mm. enable them to better deal with people within the organization, have better culture, mm-hmm. but also helping the sales team and the business development team to better understand the prospect's body language. Is that a fair point? That's a fair point. When you look at it, if you you don't really need to meet the person to start profiling them. If you've got their uh, photographs, their LinkedIn profiles, their websites, those sort of things, you already know their personality. So before right. you go and talk to them, if you're a salesperson, You'll know how much information to give to them. You'll know how much space they'll need, which you meet in a physical space for the very first time. You'll know what their buying motives are. Are they focused on the service? Are they focused on the value of the the product or service? All of the facial features will give you that information. So you've got your presentation put together before you even walk through the door. And in fact, that's how I've actually read, uh, do a cold call with an executive. If I'm going, going to do a call on the phone and there's no face there, well, first of all, I've, I've gone stalking them. I've found their face mm-hmm. on either the websites or LinkedIn or even on Facebook, wherever I've been able to find their face. 
I'll get them on the phone. And while I'm talking to them, as I'm introducing myself, I say, before I get into the conversation, can I just ask you a couple of questions? Right. And I would ask them, well, in your case, for instance, I know that you're analytical. So when you speak to people, you want all the information from them to make a decision, which means you're probably going to give them a lot of information as well. And if you've got somebody who just wants the overview, they're either going to switch off. So I'd, I'd ask you, how many times have you ever experienced when you've gone to talk to somebody, everything's gone fine, but then they either switched off or they tried to finish what you were saying and move you on. Right. And if I get that from the executive, then I'll pull, a, pull another trait that I can see on their face and talk about talking to somebody with the opposite trait again. And after I've been through about three or four traits, they usually say, how did you know all that? And I say, I'm getting it from your face. And they'll say, from my face? And I go, yes. And if I can do that from your face, and I've just proven it to you on the phone that I can do that, what would it be like if you had the, had the same skills and you were talking to your staff? Do you think you'd have better loyalty, a better understanding of them? And they go, yes. And I go, and your salespeople, if they could read the clients that way, you think you'd be able to get more conversions, be able to value add more to the sales? and get more sales and make more money. And I go, yes. And I go, well, when do we meet? Yes, I'll call. <laughs> wow. So I was I was not going to ask you this question on my own podcast as to, you know, read my face, but at least, you know, that was pretty accurate. I'm a very analytical person. So there you go. That wasn't scripted, by the way. So this is really fascinating, I must admit. And how have you learned this, Alan? And it was after my second divorce I realized that I just had to start to learn how to understand people I've been working with body language since the 70s I've worked then with psychometric profiling like Myers-Briggs and DISC and other profiles where you ask people questions and that was in the 80s and the 90s got involved in NLP but it was only in the early part of 2000 when I went through that second divorce that I realized I needed something that was going to give me a lot more information Mm. And the body body language, the micro sorry, the body language and the NLP and everything else had served me to a certain degree, but it wasn't giving me everything I needed. And it was while I was doing a workshop helping a friend of mine who was running a spiritual retreat, and I was actually using a Myers-Briggs presentation where we were doing role playing with the different dichotomies. Somebody just said to me, you ever looked at reading faces? And got onto Zoom and onto Google, I should say, and found Paul Ekman, who did all the research on the micro expressions. Mm -hmm. And I found a lady by the name of Naomi Tickle who taught the facial features, English lady who was living in California. Mm. So I, I trained with Paul's group and then I trained with Naomi and went over to the States and spent time with Naomi to do my master's in that. Came back to Australia and thought, why isn't Naomi doing what Paul's doing and why isn't Paul doing what Naomi's doing? And I realized by putting those two skills together, they mm. complemented each other so well. Because if you think fear and surprise, the eyebrows go up high. Whereas somebody who's got high set eyebrows naturally use, usually wants more space from us. Yeah. They pull back when we come too close to them. And I realized there was a correlation between the traits that were giving me a lot of information between facial features and expressions. So I thought, yep, put it with the body language because that gives us more information. And Yes, we need the, how do we actually phrase things? So the NLP came into it as well. And putting the four skills together became rapid trait profiling. Just brilliant. And so clearly it's a very unique skill set that you've developed over a period of time. And it's not something that is taught at universities, if you will. I would um, like to get it into university so that school teachers would have the skill because we'd have less kids falling through the cracks if they had the skills. 
So I deal with founders, entrepreneurs, and business owners. And I think where this is very exciting for me is, I think at least in two fronts. So one is fundraising. So there is this need to raise capital for startups and scale-ups. And being able to understand the body language of you know potential investors when you're making a pitch, I think would be quite interesting. And obviously the other one is when you're pitching to clients and enterprises and understanding their body language. Well, yeah, I'll give you an example of a client that I had a number of years ago who had made a quote, had put a quote to his prospective clients. There were two partners and he quoted on a new building. It was going to be the, the first of a number of buildings. Mm. He quoted on the first building that $2 million and they wouldn't go above 1.6 million. As he said, the deal was falling off the table. So mm. in this case, I got him to find their photographs for me. Mm-hmm. I looked at both of them and the one that he was talking to, the senior partner, he was talking to me about the money. I said, stop talking about the money. Mm. This guy's face is showing that it's all about service. He likes to receive service and therefore he's likely, likely to give service. Now, the first building they put was going to be the flagship. And right. so I said, right, talk to him about what his face is telling you. He likes great service. Talk to him how this building is going to be the flagship. It has to present all the other outlets. And if he didn't get it right the first time, it was going to be slow and laborious and probably never get the other ones in place. Mm. So I said, talk to him about the service and talk to him about the quality of the building and the, the service delivered to the clients. So he was talking his language, what interests him. He ended up quoting even higher than his $2 million. The second partner was all about the money, but he was also somebody who didn't like doing long-term projects, mm. like get in, get them finished and move on. So I said, while you're talking to the, the two, look at the one who's all about the service and talk about how this building's got to be spot on. It's got to have you know the right structure. It's got to have the right appearance, the aesthetics and everything else, the right energy for the people to really want to be there in the building. I then said, turn around the other one at that point, talk to him about, right, and by doing that, you'll be able to get more clients into the building sooner. You'll then be able to, you'll be making more money so you can move on to the next project and mm-hmm. you can get uh, that one as well completed and be able to get through the whole lot of the projects faster. Both for his prospective clients switched on. He added another $150,000 to his quote. Wow. That's brilliant. People only do business with those they know, like, and trust. And trust, yes. The know and like, and this is where there's a separation. The know and like, people will listen to you. You know, if you're advertising, 7% of people will listen. Mm. If somebody else is talking about you, then 80% of people will listen to it. And so that like section, having other people talking to you, if you're going and talking to an executive, is talking to them about the things that they're interested in them as well and talking to them in a way in which you can connect that. The sooner they like you, mm. if you're talking about, I just want to get the money for me, it's yeah. going to be a long, slow process. But if you're then talking about what they're going to get out of it, you're not advertising yourself now. You're talking about what their return's going to be. At yes. that point, they will then listen more. And at that point, while you're going through that, then you get to the trust section very quickly after that. So... It's all about getting that balance. The more you can read the other person, mm-hmm. the more you can speak their language, yeah. and the, the better the results you're going to get. Perfect. Alan, I'm sure you've had a very busy, exciting, but also challenging life. I'd love for you to share with me and my listeners a gutsy decision that you've made and how it's shaped you. Okay, well, I would say that the biggest change for me was getting into this field in the first place. Mm-hmm. I had been working in my 
own business. I was a finance broker. My second wife at that point decided that she wanted a divorce. And at that point, I realized that I needed to change everything I was doing. And as I said, I started looking at reading people Mm -hmm. and understanding them at a deeper level. It was also at the same time that I decided a few friends talked me back into massaging again. Mm. So I've been a massage therapist before that as well. And the main reason I'd stopped doing all that was because of my second wife when she left. But I got back into the massage therapy and I found that I started getting terminally ill patients coming to me. They were being sent to me from a herbalist in Newcastle, Visionary Health, where they thought that working through an NLP process with me and some massage would help them. But some of them started reversing their conditions. And that, to me, was quite bizarre. So I needed some answers to the whole thing. And through some chance meetings, met an Aboriginal group and was invited out to Bush to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And that turned into a bit of a test that night. I, you know, I was sort of checking out how serious I was about things. And that led on to being invited out Bush every weekend for over a year. And then I mm-hmm. finally went through initiation, through tribal initiation. It was all about bringing boys into manhood, which has led on to the community areas that I'm working at the moment with the Campfire Project and other areas. So with all of that, there was a massive change. I'd gone from being divorced, having another business, shutting the doors on that completely, realizing I just wasn't happy with my life. Things had to change mm-hmm. and having no idea where it was going to take me. And right. it was just being open to things that were said. There's an old saying that, you know, the Arabic saying that says, uh, trust everybody, but lock up your camels at night. Right. So, and that, along with the most important thing I'll ever learn, is the next thing I learn after I think I know everything. Those <laughs> two together, I realize go out and learn as much as I could. Anything that came up, don't close the door on it. Have a look through the door. Yeah. But then go and test it out and make sure it, it worked for me. Right. And, as I said, going out uh, bush and spending over a year on every weekend learning about Aboriginal culture. And then them turning around and saying, right, it was time that you went through initiation. Mm. And me as a, a white fella, you know, both my parents were English, going, what right do I have? Mm. You know, who am I? So with that, I realized that you've got to just trust. This is one of the things in business as well. Yes, we need to know that our targets, what we want to create, why we want to create it. We need to know our visions, our missions, our purpose statements and everything else. But we've also got to look at the way in which we do things and mm. look at it and go, okay, how open am I to possible changes? This is why anybody comes up with an idea. I stop and I listen and I let them finish what they're saying before I make a decision on it. And right. then I go, right, how can I adapt this to what I'm doing? How does this serve me? Mm. And that's how I made my all of my decisions from that point on. But it took that life-changing situation because before like that, I think I was just like a ship that was beat without a rudder. So Anna, I absolutely, I can imagine that would be a fascinating experience by itself. Having gone through all of this, do you have a daily ritual that helps you cope with this? Right? So you've learned a lot, but what is Alan's coping mechanism? Uh, it's a combination of things. One, it's you know just walking away from whatever it is that's stressing me, turn my back away from it and walk away and so I can get my head clear on it. As I grew up, I was always a loner. So I did everything on my own and I never had much support around me. Mm-hmm. And I've realized that that didn't serve me that great. 
So mm. now I've learned because of the work I was doing with the campfire project, I learned that I can't do everything on my own. Mm. So when I'm feeling stressed, I know there are certain people that I can uh, get in touch with mm. and I can, you know, I'll pre-frame it be, you know, as I start the conversation when I can say right now, I don't need any advice. I just need someone to hold the bucket while I vent. Yeah. And I can then do that. I've got others that I'll go, look, let me fully explain this. And then I'd like your feedback on it. Right. And I always remind people that I want to complete what I'm saying first, because we know today they say that the, the, the average is when somebody starts talking about a problem, it will be 19 seconds before somebody will jump in and give you advice. Right. And so this is why I realized it was extremely important if I was going to share things with people, I had to find the right people. And so you have a trusted network of people that you rely on. Exactly. Yeah. And and obviously that's taken time. And and clearly, you know, this whole trust equation is something that is flowing through this episode. So you have this element of trust everyone but lock up your camels at night. Are there other things that Alan does, like running or exercise, being with nature, meditation that that helps you? Well, meditation's always there, and that was a major part of going out bush mm-hmm. earlier on. Um, swimming is something I enjoy. Right. Running, not so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a bit, although well, knees have copped a caning with all the sports I've done over the years. And yeah. you know, you, when you get to 70 years old, you start to notice a few of the creeks and everything. Go. Yeah. <laughs> I say when I get up and out of bed in the morning and I walk across, I can hear all the joints making noise. And you know, I'm not old, I'm just crispy. <laughs> so <laughs> that's a very that's very well put. Excellent. Alan, I'd love for you to talk about the Campfire project because I can relate to it and I think it's very similar to our mission at Founders Wellbeing to build awareness around mental health and the well-being of founders and their team so that they can perform better. So talk to us a little bit about the Campfire project and then also about the uh, the business of Smiles, please. Excellent. Well, if you think about it, well, as I said, all my work was in business, talking to business uh, people. I would ask them, if you described your life, give me one word, what would it be? And a lot of the times it was confused. And I said, well, confused about what? Mm. And I was told, well, you know, I thought my job, and it was the same for me as well, I thought my job was to go out and bring the resources in for the family. Hmm. And the men are saying that we're doing that, but we're told now that we're physically and emotionally absent. And if we're home, then we're not bringing the resources in, and then there's complaints on that side. We can't be in two places at once. Mm-hmm. And the workplace, with the gender equality and political correctness, we're on tender hooks because we're so worried about saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Once upon mm-hmm. a time... You know, we just say something and it'd be water off a duck's back. These days, you know, possible lawsuits and things. And so that was causing frustration. And if you got frustrated at home, you're frustrated at work, that leads to anger. If you can't express yourself, it's mm. going to lead to anger. And that then can uh, turn into bullying in the workplace and even domestic violence. And we know that as emotional beings, you know, the old saying, leave your work life at uh, work and leave your home life at home. You can't. Mm. You take it with you. You're an emotional person. We're at least 82% emotion in our makeup and only 18% logic. So that being the case, we're going to express it. and We're going to take the problems from home to work and the work back to a home. The end result, that starts to escalate. And the men were getting so frustrated. And I thought, right, men who are frustrated, who don't have an outlet, it can lead to violence. Mm. So mm. I realized that we needed a safe place for men in particular to be able to 
sit and have someone hold their space while they tell their story. Not right. to counsel them, not to advise them, but just be the eyes and ears that they haven't been able to get from anybody else. So no judgment whatsoever. Hmm. But I didn't want it to be a men's group. So I had women in the group from day one. Hmm. I started interviewing the men, and there were some horrific stories of what these men have been through in their past. Right. Abuses of all things. Even one guy, six years old, when his brother sold him for sex. And those weeks went on for three years. So those sort of stories were coming out. My job was just to sit there and listen and hold their space. And it worked really well. I then brought them into panel discussions. And mm. we talked about, you know, drugs, alcohol, masculinity, femininity, toxicity of all those sort of things. And that was when the women started sending me personal messages who were in the group saying that we love these guys. We've never heard men talk so openly about their emotions and so deeply and we've never heard them speak so wisely about how to improve societies mm. and i thought to myself at the time yeah obviously because most of the time the men didn't feel safe enough to do that but in here they do and the women wanted to get involved and i said right well you know put your hands up because i've been waiting for you i wanted the men to lead and then the women to follow and then work together yep. and that's why it was created with the hashtag we together mm. so from there i brought the women into the one-on-ones then into panel discussions, the respect between the men and women. We've had all cultures, all religions, all genders. We've had no bigotry, sexism or racism, and not once in over 500 hours now of conversations, video conversations, over just over four years, have we had any disrespect between anybody either. So proving that you can have total equality and inclusion, and the Campfire Project's proven to be the only group that's been or uh, either group or organization that's been able to do that worldwide and consistently for four years wow so out of that i introduced two of the guys in the group to each other mm-hmm. i knew they'd hit it off and that was a bit over two years ago they started a business called the business of smiles mm. and in the business of smiles they have these very bright yellow socks with little black dots all over them smiley faces and they wear smiley t-shirts mm-hmm. they go out into the public and walk up to people and thank them for hanging in through covid through the fires through the floods thanking them for supporting the people around them and ask them if they can gift a pair of these socks to them mm-hmm. now the story of the socks are the black dots are the tough times you're going to go through in life you're not going to get out of them they're going to happen regardless yeah, But the yellow, the warmth of the winter sun, the camaraderie of having the right support around you, getting the right counselling, the right right groups of people, having the right person to go and talk to, that generally ends up into a conversation. People just open up and start talking about what they've been through. Right. And so their target now is to run from Sydney to Melbourne in the new year, handing out 10,000 pairs of socks and starting 10,000 conversations on mental health. Right. And they've already... We've, We've been out, we've been walking up to people in Lismore and other places after the floods. Yes. The guys have done runs where they've raised money for one of the schools in Lismore and then we went back up there for that. And people are just opening up. It's just changing lives left, right and centre. So between the Campfire Project, we say we've not only changed lives, but we've also saved lives. Oh, that's, I think, incredible. The links to both of these will be in the show notes, which they can then have a look at absolutely having worked with i'm sure you know multitude of different people i'd love for you to give some advice i think which would be very well received on what does it take or what would you suggest 
people do to go through really challenging times or the gutsy decisions that, that people have to make in their lives because we all have difficult situations that we go through. Well, it's always a case of if you're going to go through something before you even go through it, you know, why do you want it in the first place? Okay. What's the important thing to you? And spend some time with that, both not just thinking about it, but also your feelings around it. Mm, you know, mm. If somebody said to me, I want to change the way I'm thinking, you're not going to change the way you're thinking by thinking about it. You go <laughs> down into how that's making you feel, and then you go, okay, what's the alternative way of feeling? Right. You know, okay, tell me what you, how you prefer to feel, then well, describe what you'd be doing. The people, well, use all your senses, your visual, auditory, kinesthetic, olfactory, and gustatory. What would be involved if you felt that way? That's how you change your thinking. So it's getting people to go into that visualization at that point, the great feelings, the things that they love to do and everything else. The more they understand that, the more they know why they're doing what they're doing. Mm. As they're saying that you've got to make sure that the light at the end of the tunnel is so bright that you don't get distracted by anything else. So when tough times come up, mm. then you're able to handle those. But if you've also thought before you start to do something new, what's the worst case scenario? If this really was a struggle to get there. First of all, how much do I want it? What's the real purpose behind it? Mm. And I look at those things. What does it emotionally give me? Mm. And understanding that. Then come back to it and go, okay, who would I have as support? Mm. Who can I go and turn to? Don't wait until the things happen. Find the people around you first. Well, those confidants that you can go and have a chat with. Because yep. even when things are going well and you're talking about how things are going, if you found the right people, they will lift you up. Right. It's the people who don't fit that will try and pull you down. The tall poppy syndrome came from people who felt jealous and everything else. You find the people who really want to see you succeed. Yes. And they're the ones that you bring closer to you. So when your things are going along well, you're talking to them, which holds those things go along even better again. And then when things start to go tough, you know who you can go and talk to. So, you know, if I had to summarize, it's essentially sit down and almost visualize what's your happy state. So that when things go pear-shaped, which they will in any business or endeavor, you you know how to pull yourself up, but also you can talk to people who can help you come out of it. Is that is that a fair summary? That's it. And also look at when things are tough, new ways of doing things that will still give you the outcome you're looking for. Hmm. Because the, back at the turn of the century, I was looking at how to improve the life of kids at school, hmm. how to teach them in a way in which they would enjoy school and they'd be more productive when they left. That had a shift along the way. It brought in the, fa the face profiling and it brought in looking at getting to the Department of Education and through the government. Neither mm. were interested. Then going to the school teachers, now going to the parents, now going to the kids directly. If it looks like a door has been shut on what I want to create, I'll look for another door. Because while you look at the door that's shutting, you miss the ones that are opening. Yes. So I very quickly look for the opening ones. There's a lot of people that said, Alan, with everything you've achieved in the last couple of years, you've virtually become an overnight success. And I said, yeah, well, it's taken me two decades to get there. <laughs> but that's the thing to be aware of as well, that if it's worthwhile, mm. it's going to have a long-lasting result. It's going to take a bit of effort and a bit of time to put it together. If it's easy to put together, it's going to be superficial and it's going to disappear very quickly as well. And someone else might have done it already. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's very, very valuable. Alan, it is, it's been my pleasure having you on this episode. Thank you very much for your time and for to be on this project. Thank you very much, Sandeep. I've enjoyed it too.